You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Steven Spielberg presents Catch Me Crystal Skull if you can, Indiana Jones. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I'm Thomas Mariani, and I am a podcaster. Part time. I am Adam Thomas, and Thomas Mariani stole my joke. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know what his joke was for the record. We didn't tell each other what our jokes were going to be at the start of this. (laughs) Well, it looks like I caught your joke. I caught it, but I could. Uh, go fuck yeah. yourself. <laughs> yes, and we're not the only ones here, Adam, currently. Uh, for this episode, we have a special guest returning uh, for the first time in too long. His uh, second appearance on the show, uh, the editor-in-chief over at Talk Film Society, Mr. Marcelo Pico. Marcelo, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be back to talk about these movies and the man behind them. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, happy to be here. For every topic that we usually do for Double Edge, Double Bill, uh, we talk about a randomly selected double feature picked at the end of the previous episode. One is, in theory, a good and, in theory, a bad movie. There might be some debatable aspects to those, because uh, it's all from perspective's sake. But, uh, as Marcelo kind of referenced, uh, the topic for today is a director specifically, and it's Mr. Steven Spielberg, who we've done several of his movies on the show before as part of other topics. Like, we've done the original Jurassic Park uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, AI Artificial Intelligence, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and The Adventures of Tintin. But the man is so prolific with his directorial career alone that there was more than enough to do an actual episode about him. And uh, we're doing this, of course, in honor of West Side Story. Uh, his remake is coming out uh, the week we're releasing this, which should be fascinating, especially uh, since he's never done a full-on musical. He's hinted at it with, like, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and stuff like that. But going with a full-bore musical... Uh, it was pretty interesting. Marcelo, are you, um, I'm guessing you're a fan. You wouldn't have done this if you weren't <laughs> interested at all in him. How do you feel about him doing a musical and doing something just hasn't oh, tackled in his long career? That's a hell of a question. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I uh, helped produce a Spielberg podcast a few years ago with uh, Matt Curione over at Talk From Society. Um, and I, I think, I, I guess he's my third favorite filmmaker of all time. Uh, after Soderbergh and Fincher, but he's the one filmmaker I know more about because I, I I did a few reports on him in college. Here's what's happening between me and Spielberg and West Side Story. Okay, I saw West Side Story, the original, for the first time almost two years ago now. Um, blown away, right? And of course, I was excited, you know, for a new Spielberg. But I was questioning why he was doing this, because I know he's a huge fan of the, the original. I know he's wanted to do a musical for a long time. But the, the original was just, it's, I mean, it won Best Picture. It's perfect as it is. But now I haven't seen it yet, and I'm excited for it because I've heard from, from the right people that it is 
maybe not as great as the original, but it is, it is it is amazing in its own right. It it does some interesting choices with the source material, and of course, it's Spielberg doing a musical, which I've wanted to see since that opening of Temple of Doom. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited for it. I, I'm excited he's finally getting this out of his system. He's been thinking about this for years, for decades, you know, even uh, wanting to do a musical. So I'm excited. I'm excited. And Spielberg, Spielberg's a good, good director. Good director. Whoa, hot take, man. I don't know. That's, <laughs> that's thing, I know. coming in hot. <laughs> I mean, you kind of referenced this that like there's so much like backlog stuff about Spielberg. Like I remember. Um, earlier this week, I unearthed a crucial text of, like, Thomas Mariani lore, which was the biography episode they did of Steven Spielberg back when Peter Graves was still narrating those. Oh, yeah. I saw you tweet it, and I almost clicked on it. I, I'm pretty sure I'd seen that when it came out, because I, I, I was – I loved that series, like, when it was on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, bring them back. I know there's so many, like, copyright issues with that, but come on, A&E. Put him out somewhere yeah. we can stream him, you cowards. I want to hear Peter Graves' voice again. Uh, but I think that was, was interesting going back to that and just even like going back to all this stuff. Because like, Spielberg is kind of like the urtext for if you become a film fan to some degree, especially us, like our generation definitely, where it's like from like the 90s on where like the J- Jurassic Park sort of like cemented him as like, oh, he is the filmmaker that like everybody knows the look of him, even like non-film people will reference, like, oh, you're a little Spielberg if you want to, like, get into filmmaking and stuff like that. Like, Spielberg is one of those guys where he's sort of, like, the baby's first auteur, basically. Where you see every element of, like, oh, okay, oh, yeah. this this is the familiar stuff, this makes sense. Even, like, from when he was doing his more big blockbustery stuff through to now in his more kind of serious period, you see, like, those recurring things and recurring factors just all the time with all of his work. Yeah, it, it, was, it was Jaws for me that was my first favorite movie. And seeing it on TCM, I'd say what like um, over twenty years ago, because I'm so old. Um, that that was it. I'm like, oh, this is ha- what a good movie's supposed to look like. I'd say late '90s is when I saw that, and that was it for me. Yeah, I remember seeing both like Jaws and Jurassic Park, probably like near each other, if not first, whichever. But especially as like a Florida boy watching Jaws. It was just like, oh, great, I can never do the main thing everyone wants to do in Florida again. I'm going to the beach because of just, like, this giant-ass shark that's just, like, going around. It really <laughs> it captured the imagination for sure. But, Adam, what about you? What was your first real exposure to, to Spielberg's filmography? What really uh, kind of clinched it for you? Oh, man, growing up, it was, it was definitely Raiders. You know, it, it's just I remember seeing that when I was really, really young, and I was a huge Indiana Jones fan. I remember growing up like Spielberg movies were events you know it was like he's probably the first really example that I can think of growing up knowing what a blockbuster director was someone who made these giant spectacle movies that were just always consistent if if not great they were at least good and uh, I've been a huge fan of Spielberg ever since I can remember I mean I saw Jurassic Park in the theater and absolutely loved it I was scared to shit by it from the uh, the goat lake scene, but uh, I absolutely loved it, and I, I've just sort of been a huge fan of his ever since. I've seen every movie I can of his in the theater when available. Like I saw Saving Private Ryan opening day. I saw I've seen a bunch of his movies, and I, I just think that he has a style that's so identifiable his, but it translates across almost any genre he wants to put his fingers into. And I just think there's really no one quite like him. Yeah, and it's even not just the directorial stuff that, like, really, like, touched that stuff. But I remember even being a very young kid, even before I maybe even saw Jaws of Jurassic Park, and watching, like, Animaniacs. 
and stuff like that. Like oh, all yeah. the the ambulance stuff that he produced also really was pervasive. Like even Back to the Future, he has his name all over. He came up with Lucas and a lot of those other filmmakers around that time. And he also kind of birthed the next generation of like these blockbuster directors like Zemeckis and a few others that were Chris Columbus as well. Just people that like really pervade throughout like the 90s and stuff like that, which is interesting since tonight we are talking about films from uh, more of the new millennium era, which is an interesting kind of transitional point for him, especially with uh, we're talking about our good pick, which was one of my picks where we randomly chose and ended up getting Catch Me If You Can, uh, which was around when he was starting to do like DreamWorks pictures and stuff like that. And then we're going to be talking about Adam's bad pick, Indiana Jones, The King of the Crystal Skull, which is him kind of trying to return back to the 80s era where he was really at his height to maybe not the best results. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Um, but first, we're going to talk about Catch Me If You Can. Welcome to Miami Mutual Bank. How may I help you? I'd like to cash this check here, and then I'd like to take you out for a steak dinner. <laughs> Are you a real-life pilot? I sure am, little lady. Special Agent Hanratty, FBI. Hello, Carl. You're gonna get caught. It's like Vegas. The house always wins. Some nuts flying around the country posing as a pilot, calling the James Bond of the sky. Hello, pusher. He's a kid. That's why he doesn't have a record. What do you want? To apologize. You didn't call to apologize, did you? You have no one else to call. I'm looking for your son. I would never give up my son. Stop chasing me. I can't stop. It's my job. Nobody had a better brain on my Merry Christmas parade. I'm getting close, huh? You will go to prison. You're gonna have to catch me. So uh, Catch Me If You Can came out uh, December 25th, 2002. Uh, from, of course, Mr. Spielberg, uh, written by Jeff Nathanson, uh, based on the book of the same name by uh, Stan Redding and Frank Abagnale Jr., who's the subject of this particular film, because this is based on a true story about Mr. Abagnale, when in the 60s he was a young man that ran away from home after his parents were uh, beginning to divorce and uh, became basically the greatest con artist out there uh, with his ability to uh, con people into thinking his various different disguised professions were his own, um, while also taking advantage of the slow system of how checks were used at the time. And uh, this was a movie that he made in 2002. It's kind of part of a weird trilogy, I would say, that sort of marked his transitional point with Spielberg, I would argue, with uh, in 2001 there was AI, which we've talked about on the show, and then in 2002 there was Minority Report, and then this movie. And I feel like those three movies are kind of him using that sort of fulcrum point of, like, going from overt, like, big uh, blockbuster filmmaker into being the more serious, grounded filmmaker he would be in the new millennium. Would you maybe agree with that, Marcelo? Oh, yeah. 2002, specifically, hell of a year for him in my book. The Minority Report came out the same year, and that blew my mind. Um, and I think that, along with AI, which I caught on a little bit after... I saw Minority Report. I know that came out before, but Minority Report felt like it was still the same Spielberg, but he was just using these these new tools. He was like making it just as fresh and inventive as like the previous films I've saw of his, and it just felt so dark. I mean, I was still you know pretty young back then in 2002, but now like as the years progressed, like Minority Report especially 
a clear sign of like where he was going to go. And then along with like uh, War of the Worlds and even like Munich, like, yeah, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm totally on board. Like, I, I, I'm OK with like, him bringing away from uh, his uh, very, very like, uh, you know, uh, glorified, Americanized way um, that he's been uh, portrayed as. Tell me he's as wholesome after seeing like Munich. War of the Worlds and Minority Report and AI. Th- those are the terms for me that I, I, f- I felt like he needed in the 2000s. And then Catch Me If You Can, rewatching Catch Me If You Can, I'm like, oh, this is also more mature than I remembered. Like, there's a lot going on here, especially knowing more about the man now. I learned more about the man, and I found this connection to the movie that I didn't know before. It, I, I don't know how old he was when he made Catch Me If You Can, but it feels like he's constantly maturing with every decade. And I could definitely see that, see that with like a movie like Catch Me If You Can, along with like all the other movies I said, you know, AI, uh, Munich, My Minority Report. But yeah, I love this turn he did in the, in the 2000s. The, those three movies I specified, like AI is about like a young child kind of being in the middle of like what would be wondrous Spielberg in other circumstances, like, oh, it's a world, future world of robots, only to realize like, oh, this is terrible, I want my mommy. And the Minority Report is all about like, oh, I have all these cool tools I can use to like really help out society, but really this is all easily corruptible. And then Catch Me If You Can is about like a teenager who's in the middle of that, where he's like, I am going on a full-on fun like Spielberg-style adventure of just being able to like, disguise myself. It, it, this is so based in like what Spielberg was so influenced by, with a lot of like the James Bond references and stuff like that. A lot of the kitsch that he was sort of like nostalgic for, only to realize like, oh, living in that world is empty and cold. And I hate being here, and I want my mommy. <laughs> it's similarly like it's yeah. it's it's, it's very much like a, a movie about kind of like getting the fancy world you want and realizing it's not all it's cracked up to be, and that you really would want family. What about um, Adam? What about uh, you and your uh, thoughts on this kind of transitional phase for Spielberg? I mean, I, I definitely agree. The, the three films that you specified in particular did feel like sort of a change in what his maybe even personal viewpoints had become. He needed to get out of a system now that he's already done like the family friendly sort of blockbuster pieces or dabbled in horror with Jaws or even, you know, the drama war movies, Save Pride Ryan. And then he, he sort of goes into really strange sci fi for two movies, especially, you know, the one with the Kubrick connection and AI and then the one based off a of Philip K. Dick book with Minority Report. And then he goes into this sort of uh, like a heist chase movie that's got a lot of moments of levity in it. There's a lot of fun beats to it, a lot of humor, a lot of great performances. But at the heart and soul of it, it is just a really sort of dark story and how even if you do get all the things you might want out of, you know, whatever he's doing, if you if you come across him and maybe not so honest means or forget the people like your family and stuff like he yeah he tries to keep contact with dad stuff but he's out there on his own the whole time and if you do get all those things maybe it might really suck for you <laughs> like you know there's no point in this where frank abignale the leo character he never feels like he's able to relax in this at all and you know it's because of the choices he made to get where he wants and and i feel maybe that you know, obviously it's a biopic and it's based on a book, but I also feel like maybe it's a little bit of Spielberg in there saying like he wants to keep trying different things and keep going into different places. He not necessarily has gone before, like not necessarily reinvent the wheel or reinvent his tools or things like that, but definitely apply those tools to sort of a different machine. And uh, I, I think it, I thought it was very exciting to see like Minority Report alone, you know, I don't want to talk too much about a different movie, but 
you know, I almost liken Minority Report to Spielberg, like I would Shutter Island to Scorsese. It's just such a weird departure for them and something you wouldn't expect out of them. But it, I mean, I'm glad he did it. And I'm glad it sort of got us to where we are now with Spielberg in a way. Yeah. And there's also a lot of like the same things. What I like is that even though Spielberg is clearly like doing a different kind of um, adventure in this case, it's not as like whimsical and fun as some of his earlier ones. Like there's a bit of that like sort of adventurous spirit and fun, but there's also not just even the mommy connection, but also even like the wanting to make dad approve of you themes that were definitely there from the start in his work. Like obviously he's like a dude who very early on experienced like divorce and his dad left the family and he was really upset about that. And that carried throughout his work right down to catch me if you can is so inherently about that with like the relationship between DiCaprio here with Christopher Walken, who was nominated for an Oscar for this movie deservedly is like, it's, it's such a stellar example of like, even though that's stretching the truth because apparently Frank Abagnale never saw his father again after he like ran away from home. He never actually saw him again. It still feels like very emotionally true for just like, oh, I'm trying to still please my father. I'm still trying to like keep that family unit together every time I'm around my dad. Like the whole scene where he talks to him um, after like he'd earlier explained the whole thing. about like, oh yeah, the story about um, meeting his mom for the first time at the French village during the war. And then when he comes back to like the restaurant, it's just like, look, dad, I'm a pilot. You can... I can give you some money. You can go and see mom. Just and he, Chris Rockin starts delivering the story and breaks the fuck down. It is such a beautiful moment. It just displays the fact that it's like, oh, this guy who you looked up to as a hero is just as fragile a human being as you really are, and you're not even admitting it to yourself, Frank Abagnale. It's such a good way of like getting past all of, like the adventurous cinematic bullshit to the real truth of just like, oh, hey. We're all broken people. It's really upsetting. What I found out in doing research uh, for that Spielberg podcast a few years ago is that Spielberg and his father, I don't know if you guys know this, but like they weren't talking to each other in the 90s mm-hmm. uh, for over a decade because Steven Spielberg believed like his father like had hated on his mother and there was like a big misunderstanding. But it wasn't until like they reconciled that Spielberg found out the truth that his mother actually had the affair and, and was the cause of the divorce, right? Or, or at least more so than Steven Spielberg thought. And then yeah, him and his dad got back together, uh, I think right, right around the time Saving Private Ryan came out. With with Frank Abagnale um, in real life, he never saw his father again. And I could see Spielberg come to the story and say, you know what, let's, let's have the dad be like the central figure. Like let's push the mom out and let's have the dad be the one tie to his like life as it was right because because we don't see frank in the movie talk to his mom at all i think after he leaves uh, i think he just sees her through the window at the end right. um and i i believe that's purposeful in how spielberg i guess wanted to like just make this movie about a father and a son and that missing family element that's that just really i mean i i don't want to put Steven Spielberg on a couch but like I can see him going through his own sort of therapy with this movie like sort of like having these issues with his father reconciling and making this about a father and son I was also reminded that E.T. had its 20th anniversary the same year in 2002 and they released that dumb 20th anniversary E.T. version with like the guns removed right they completely improved the movie good point that they completely improved the movie 100% (laughs) it's a much better film without those guns but I bring that up because I think this Catch Me If You Can makes a good like like bookend to E.T. and how uh, Steven Spielberg made E.T. before 
really making that connection with his father, reconciling with him, and making E.T. about, like, uh, a son and his mom and, like, that missing father figure and this being sort of the opposite. So anyway, that's what ran through my head watching this, and that's why I'm like, oh, God, this is why I love Spielberg. <laughs> because maybe maybe more so than many other directors, he really puts everything on, on the screen. That's why I'm so intrigued with his next movie where he's basically filming like his life. <laughs> he's making his own biography in, in his next movie. Uh, but, but what about with uh, catch me if you can specifically more so like we, you haven't talked about the film more overall, I guess like where do you think this one lines up with like Spielberg's filmography? What do you think uh, makes this one maybe stand out or not? Do you, do you think, I personally think it's one of his masterpieces. Would you maybe agree with that? It's, it's hard for me to say. Cause I think he has like, I don't know, five or more other masterpieces <laughs> above this. <laughs> but, the, okay, so I, before watching this, I would have put this like mid-range, but now it's like uh, above mid-range, like maybe closer to the top than I than I would have given it credit for. I think I ranked it lower before this rewatch because of that light tone. Um, it, it fools you. Like it, it, I, I find this movie very funny and I find this movie very enjoyable. I love Tom Hanks's performance in it i love his accent i love that joke he says um uh, go fuck yourself uh and, and i love that dynamic b- between um dicaprio and hanks too um and the cast is amazing it's so effervescent at times but it really tricks you and it really becomes that drama and it really hits you hard by the end the mix of tones it's not that it bothers me but i think for me it's hard to connect with Maybe I just need to give it more time. Maybe another watch or two over the next few years. Maybe I'll love it more. But yeah, it, it definitely improved with this rewatch for me. I mean, I've always loved this one. I think it's mainly because you you kind of talked about this with like the mixing of the tones. Like, I, I think the movie's intentionally like Frank Abagnale Jr. It's deceiving you the whole time. It is like sort of like a oh, yeah. sleight of hand where it's very much a thing of like, oh, aren't we having fun with this kid on his big giant adventures? And aren't we just like really into like him doing all this stuff? And the movie just gradually presents the idea that like, well, this is fun in the moment. We're not denying that. It's really fun to be able to like go globetrot and like be a pilot in this era, hang out with stewardesses, you know, have sexy romps with like Jennifer Gardner and Amy Adams and Elizabeth Banks at very early in their careers. It's just like, oh, that sounds like it could be a lot of fun. But it's so fucking empty compared to just, like, sitting around with a bunch of people who, like, you actually care about you, like, a family. Like, Martin Sheen, when he shows up, he's initially so intimidating. But I love how he and, like, Amy Adams and, like, that whole little family union becomes so adorable that you're immediately with DiCaprio. We're just like, why why would I ever leave this? This is so pleasant and wonderful. How could I ever, like, go on a huge globetrotting adventure after this point? But he has to because that's the life he's created for himself. That's what I love so much about it. It's a movie about that initial joy of being in the middle of a cinematic adventure only to realize this this isn't last, this falls the fuck apart when you really like sit and think around about it for a second. Well, what about you, Adam? What, what do you think about this one in terms of uh, Spielberg's filmography? Oh, I think it's a masterpiece. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I absolutely, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Now, I had thought I'd seen this movie in its entirety before the rewatch on this, and I was pleasantly surprised that I hadn't. Uh, so this was the first time I've seen this movie from front to back. Now, I don't know why that's the case, but it definitely was. Um, and I started it kind of late at night and, uh, I mean, I was hook, line and sinker. I didn't move from my chair the entire time. Um, I, I really enjoy the movie. I love the color scheme. I love the opening credits, uh, animation. 
I love all the little bit performances. I thought Elizabeth Banks was hilarious, uh, especially with her laugh and stuff. It was so funny. It, it, that's the thing. I, it's got so much heart and humor to it, but it's just, it gets so sad and depressing at times too. Um, especially when Walken breaks down at the, when he gives him the car and all that, not because he gave him the car, but that scene. I'm like, fuck, not Christopher Walken. No. <laughs> But it's, uh... You're supposed to be the weapon of choice. You should be dancing. <laughs> Start <laughs> dancing, please. <laughs> yeah, dance more. Uh, I I really enjoyed it, man. I thought it was great. I, I it's a perfect little cat and mouse movie, and it's it's the way he sort of gets the one up on Hanratty. You know, quite frequently, it was very funny. Like especially the airport scene where, you know, some guy gave me this car and told me to put on his uniform and wait for somebody. And you know, it's just, it's so funny and well constructed. And it's just, you don't ever want him to get caught in the movie, but at the same time, you're like, oh, he really needs to get caught because, <laughs> like, just you want the redemption for the character at the same time because you do enjoy following him so much. But if he just continues to go on and con people and steal and stuff like that, then you're not going to get that. But I just love the way the movie wrapped up. I, I thought it, it was just so well done and the, their friendship and the way it was sort of blooming throughout the whole movie. They generally had sort of a respect for each other in a way. And ultimately what, when you find out what happens with this is really what happened in, in real life. It, it's sort of, mind-blowing i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this movie i i thought tom hanks accent while ludicrous at times was also perfect <laughs> for the character um it just added that little bit of punch of humor to it um and i love his interaction with the other fbi agents anytime they're all together because uh, they're just kind of goofballs and he's no nonsense um i love the back and forth with the christmas thing where they always call, talk to each other on christmas in yeah. some way or or form uh, i just I really, really had a good time with this. I had a better time than I was expecting to. I, I remember uh, knowing this was a good movie, but it's just, it kind of blew me away. I really, really like it. It definitely entered top echelon for me. I, I think this is a really good Christmas movie. I mean, it, it. I say that because, yes, it's part of the plot, right? Like, they call each other on Christmas. I love, I love that aspect of the film. But for me, like, when I see these movies during Christmas, uh, these prestige pictures, let's say, you know, in December... Those I rarely revisit as like other movies, which is weird for me to say because I love movies. And like usually for me, when it's like Oscar season, like that's when I am most alive. <laughs> that's when the best ones come out, usually. But maybe that's a reason why I don't revisit this one as often because I feel like, oh, I saw it during Christmas. I had a great time watching it, you know. And and also maybe the runtime, which again, I, uh, I think Adam, you pointed out, I mean, this this movie goes pretty quick for two hours and 20 minutes that went by pretty fast so maybe just my reluctance to to not see it you know as, as many times as i should have over the years has to do with like maybe me putting it into a box of like this is like a prestige christmas movie it's too long like maybe i just i'm not in the mood for it so yeah maybe i should take that away from my mind and like give this more of a shot over the next few years well, it also feels it's a lot more like a Christmas movie than a lot of those movies where, like, so many times those ones will come out around Christmas and it'll be like, oh, they clearly had this because they knew they were coming out on Christmas. Like, I think of yeah. watching Manchester by the Sea and there's, like, a couple scenes where you see wreaths on doors. And it's just like, that's yeah, right. it's, it's, it's a Christmas movie, right? That makes it, or, like, La La Land, they're like, there's one scene where the club is dressed up for Christmas and, like, that's about it. As opposed to a movie like Catch Me If You Can, it's really integral to that plot element of just like on the day where everyone else has somebody, 
both Frank Abagnale and Carl Hanrahan don't have anybody, and they just end up calling each other. Like, I love that gotcha moment, too, where Carl's just like, you have no one to call. And it's the one time Leo's, like, really nervous and during, like, the first part of the movie. And Carl just, like, celebrates, like, <laughs> you know, he's the saddest, yeah. pathetic motherfucker in the middle of this office that's closed for Christmas. It's <laughs> such a great example of, like, these two characters want to catch each other because they can clearly see, like, they are different versions of that same coin where they're both lacking in a family, but one is, like, go off gallivanting and having fun adventures while the other one is, like, the one guy who wants to be part of, like, the check fraud department at that office. Like, I, I just love that idea that they're both kind of, like, searching after each other in that own way and that there, like, is a respect, but it's almost, like, enraged. Like, the whole scene where he nearly catches Leo and Leo pretends to be the guy in the Secret Service, Barry Allen, which I also love, that element of, like, the whole, like, him using comic book aliases. Oh, Tom Hanks really wants to catch him just so he can catch, like, what he feels like is almost the best version of what he feels he could be. And Leo wants to, like, get caught by him because it's like, I kind of want that security of, like, a father figure who doesn't have a family. They're, like, weird, like, two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. I want to get back together. Yeah, and I love that moral quandary uh, that Frag Abagnale has, especially at the end. There's so many of those scenes that are just so sad and tender, but yet they work in this movie, and they're entertaining. Like, that's what Spielberg does best, is, like, making these emotional moments uh, look so alive and vivid and the way it's shot and acted. But that scene in the airport where where, where Carl like, catches Frank, you know, when he's about to leave, and they have that conversation, and then at the very end, Carl just says, "You know, nobody's chasing you," and yes. and like that's what he wanted all along, really, because like earlier on in the movie, he goes, "Just don't chase me anymore, don't chase me," and Carl just goes, "That's not gonna happen." I think DiCaprio, he gives such a great performance here. Like like for me, I I always love the guy, but I think. Like the roles that he's worked best with are the roles where he he plays that baby face like really well. And here it's like it's like right on the cusp of like him being an adult and like him being like that that young you know guy who died in the Titanic. He plays his younger self and older self, older in quotes because he's still like what like still still like nineteen by the end of it. It perfectly because he has so much on his shoulder yet he's still a young kid. His hand got caught in a cookie jar. He just wants it all to stop. And he has that weight on his shoulders and like there's Carl just saying. Like, just turn yourself in. You know, this program where you can work, you're still, in a way, incarcerated, but you're not in jail. Like, you're you're, you're, you're working your way through it. Um, like, that's better than being in jail. <laughs> so I, I love this whole moral thing that Frank has to just go through, and Carl's just there to help him, as as like, like any father figure would at that point. Uh, so, yeah, in the end, I think that's all just beautiful. And it's all there in the last, like, 20 minutes. Um, where you think it would end, like you like you think a movie like this would end with like him getting caught, but those extra twenty minutes, I think, really are important to this whole story. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that too. And I do want to say, this is probably, I think, we can all agree, the last time DiCaprio could convincingly play a teenager. Yeah, <laughs> that's like, true. It really works though. Like he does look like he's about a seventeen-year-old kid when he's in the, you know, the school uniform and stuff like that. Like it does work. Clearly, he's not, but it's still believable enough. But at the same time, it's also believable that he could be like the adult that he's imitating. Like that first scene when he becomes the substitute teacher at the school was such yeah. a great example of that, where he has that confidence immediately uh-huh. of just like, oh I no, agree. hey, I'm a teacher. I'm not going to handle your bullshit. Just uh, deal with me. I think it's really interesting also considering this movie came out within a week of Gangs of New York. 
and just how oh, wow. diametrically different really? the performances. I that was the weird, they were gonna come out like the same day, and it was a weird thing where like Gangs of New York kept getting delayed because of weird cut issues that were going on, and it was gonna come out then December twenty fifth, and then Spielberg and Scorsese were like, "How about we have moved Gangs like five days earlier?" I believe is what it was. Wow, you just blew my mind because I did not know that. <laughs> but it, it's such a diametrically different performances. And he looks entirely different. I mean, from yeah. either. I mean, of course, he's got facial hair and stuff, but even like the the width of his face and his body in Gangs in New York compared to this, like, dude, he must have went through an extreme sort of physical transformation to do these two movies so close together. Because in Catch Me If You Can, he's still like you know young, the beach, skinny DiCaprio. But in Gangs New York, it's like kind of beefy. I believe that was shot a bit earlier than Catch Me If You Can, but it ended up coming out at the same time. But I mean, regardless, he just was looking at Gangs in New York just like, you know what? I didn't eat, like, any kind of moose guts, so I'm not going to win that Oscar. I got to wait. Got to wait, like, <laughs> 13 years. <laughs> then I'll have it. I don't want to relitigate that, but, I mean, he was doing his career best in, like, these in like these 2000s because like for for my money like his best and this is per, you know personal bias because the departed is my favorite scorsese but like it, he should have won for like the, the the departed even like before that he should have won for the aviator did DiCaprio get nominated for this because he should have at least gotten nominated no the only things this movie got nominated for were walking for best supporting actor and then best score for williams which we haven't mentioned at all but it's a top tier john williams score yeah like just it, it's oh, so God, different yeah. from him too it's not that whimsy stuff you usually get it's very like jazzy, almost like improvised in a way that really works. Oh, it's so beautiful, and that opening—it's beautiful. Because I know that was that itself. I'm sure is an influence uh, from you know the work that um, Hitchcock did with um, I forget Saul Bass. Saul Bass, thank you. Uh, that's a clear influence on Williams, and I'm sure this you know uh, opening titles, whole musical uh, opening title sequence influenced so many others after that. Oh, I'm sorry. By the way, Saul Bass, I'm referring to the guy who made the actual titles. You're talking about Bernard Herman, then, in terms of... Yes, the uh, Herman and Saul yes. Bass together. Right. Yeah. So those two, you know, and I, I don't know who made the titles for, for this movie. They should have got, you know, an Oscar or some award. I agree, and it instantly puts you in the, the time setting that this movie takes place with the animation and stuff. It absolutely feels like the opening to an old game show or a sitcom or something like that, but just done expertly well. Like, you are immediately in this era after those titles and the opening score. It, it, it works perfectly well of setting the tone of what this movie is and when it takes place. Especially with this time watching it, I just kind of realized like, oh shit, this is just fucking Mad Men. Like so much of yeah, Mad well, Men can be traced to this particular fucking movie. Even just like down to that, that tonal thing of just like, oh, isn't it great being high flying and go going about and just gallivanting and being like on this great adventure tour of like men and then realizing, oh, we're all just sad boys. We're all very sad boys. Oh, yeah, 100%. There's a bunch of sad boys. Yep, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> For sure on that. And I mean, it's in, there's so much else like we could talk about. We talked already so much about this movie, but like the cast we mentioned, so many young people, like I love Amy Adams in this movie and how adorable oh, she's yeah. the moment she shows up with the braces. And then as it keeps going along, you're instantaneously like, you know what, I get it, DiCaprio. I'll get why you would want to stick around with her. She seems so sweet and sincere. And then, like, him being so desperate, like, look, I have all these money in the suitcases, and we can go on an adventure together, just come down to Miami, and she's, like, so distraught about it. And another fucking super solid bit supporting Martin Sheen. Like, he's super yes. solid in this. Right. He's great. I love the teeth that they put him in, like, they gave him those big veneers, and he's got that accent, and he's, he's, I love it. Why did you go ahead and ask me what you want to ask me? Well, so, so how could I, 
how can I work at your firm? No, no, no. I mean, what you really want to ask me. <laughs> like, it's so great. Or it's even perfect. the bit where it's just like, no, I'm sorry, sir. Yeah, I, I have to come clean to you. He's just like, you're a romantic. It's yeah, such yep, a good yep. bit. Such a good bit. Did he still have that old dog? You can tell he's trying to catch him. Yeah. <laughs> no, the dog's dead. Oh, that's a shame. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Another great person, shout out just to James Brolin as Jack Barnes. Oh, yeah. Who is the guy that... um basically ends up sort of breaking up the relationship. That scene where DiCaprio comes back and sees his mom and him and instantaneously knows like, oh, there's been some kind of rift here. This immediately just knows something's happened. It's such a well-orchestrated scene, such a great example of like what we talk about with Spielberg, which is like such subtle bits of character interaction. DiCaprio isn't like causing a huge storm with his mom the moment any of that happens. And he's just kind of like laying down there. Or even there's a scene later on where his mom is being uh, interviewed by Tom Hanks and his buddies. And she brought out like little pastries. And the one guy's trying to get the fork the whole time. that Tom <laughs> Hanks is attentively listening. And he just, without looking at the guy, picks up the fork and like almost makes like a stabbing motion yeah. at the dude <laughs> to give it to him. There's like so many great little bits of character interaction that show that like Spielberg isn't just spectacle. He knows character interactions really well. Yeah, see, that's that, that's a great example of what I was saying before. Like, even like in a scene like that, where yeah, what is happening in the scene, what what they're talking about is very important. Where like her son is, but yet there's that comic beat where you understand that Carl, yes, is a <laughs> is basically an asshole, <laughs> or just so so strict that he doesn't want to be bothered while he's like questioning, you know, the mother of a prime suspect. <laughs> it's like here's your fucking fork, man. <laughs> No, no, yeah, and it, and even boiling down all the way to, like, that scene where after he's been caught but he escapes from the hospital bit and goes over to his mom's house only to find out she's just had a completely different family without him is, like, so devastating. It's probably my favorite acting DiCaprio's ever done in a movie. It's just him looking through that window and, like, having the brief communication with, ostensibly, like, his half-sister going back and forth and then getting caught and saying, like, give me in that fucking car, Frank. I can't stay here. I can't be around here. It's so emotionally devastating. And it leads into even what Marcelo mentioned. That, like, that last 20 minutes, in theory, could just be excised. And you don't. You could just have it over a title. But it's really crucial because it's him finding some kind of a middle ground for what he wants. Of, like, having some kind of family. It's just like, well, you have a job that's steady. And you can have a friendship with Carl you never could have had before. That would that almost feels like a surrogate father relationship. It's a great example of like you get something, but it isn't quite exactly what you wanted, but still has some kind of happy ending there, more than you'd ever expect for this guy. And even just like their final exchange being the whole thing about like, how did you get past the bar? Oh, I studied for two weeks just straight. I didn't cheat at all. Is that true? Nice check. <laughs> like, that whole exchange is a perfect way to end that movie. Oh, so good. Yeah. And I mean, it's not your typical happy ending as many people have accused Spielberg of like tacking on to his endings. Like yeah. I'm still upset over the fact that people quote unquote blame him for that AI ending, which is not true. I don't yes. want to get into that. Um, but, we talked about this previously like, when we talked about AI. That is yeah. not the case. Okay, good, good, yes. good. Not the case, right? So back off. <laughs> back um, the fuck <laughs> off, guys. Defending my man Spielberg who needs defense at any struggle. <laughs> the one person who doesn't need it at all. Leave the guy alone. He's, what else does he have? <laughs> give him five more oscars um, <laughs> but but like i think you said it tom you said it perfectly um like he has to find it himself like of course spielberg he wants colin frank to 
find, you know, some sort of closure, some sort of happiness. And he wants to be true to life, too, because, yes, in, in reality, these two became friends and worked together. And finding that path, you know, to the end, with those, you know, 20 minutes at the end, you see by way of reality and by way of this movie that that does happen. Um, and it's it's beautiful. It's not the typical ending you'd expect with a movie like this, where I don't know, like Frank gets away and is like on an island, like you know, sipping a margarita or something. Like that's you know typical Hollywood bullshit ending. But here, you know, uh, he's stuck at a desk working with Carl, and, but they're friends. It works, and yeah, it, it's it's a reason why I think Spielberg should get more credit with like his endings, and they're not all typical you know, Hollywood happy endings. They're, you know, they're more real, I think, than what he's given credit for. And also imagine in this bad Hollywood ending you're kind of constructing, Carl's like at his desk at the phone, just like, Abagnale, looking into the sky. <laughs> so here we go again. Catch me if you can too. <laughs> this time he might get caught. Um, but we, we've talked a lot about this movie. We have a whole other movie to talk about. So let's do some quick... Do we? <laughs> we, we, we do. We do. Uh, but some quick final thoughts then on uh, this movie. Um, Marcelo, our guest, please, your, your final thoughts on Catch Me If You Can. Oh, I'll just say, yeah, I, this movie, uh, even with the recent rewatch, it has grown in my heart uh, like so much more than before. Even though, yes, before this rewatch, I thought it was a very good movie. But now I think it's like great. It, it could cut into... That's Spielberg top 10, which is uh, it's, it's a mighty top 10 uh, in, in, in my book. Uh, I dare to call it a masterpiece because I, I uh, you know, the last few years, I, I try not to use that phrase, you know, so much. But it's, it's, it is kind of a masterpiece. It's, it's, yeah, I think, it, I think you could say it's another one. Well, Adam, your final thoughts on Catch Me If You Can. Uh, it's, I mean, it's solid from top to bottom. I mean, it's filled with great performances, a lot of whimsy, a lot of drama, uh, just everything looks accurate from the period, the clothing, the music, the lighting, the cars, the location. It's expertly crafted to tell the story it's trying to tell. Um, and I think that in, it wouldn't be as effective in anybody else's hands. So this is definitely a Spielberg movie from top to bottom with the, even the way the story's told. It's just, it's a fantastic movie. Interesting fact also given that right before Spielberg took it over, it was going to be a Gore Verbinski movie that would have starred DiCaprio, but also uh, as Carl, it was going to be James Gandolfini, Ed Harris was going to be Frank Abagnale Sr., and Chloe Savini was going to be the um, Amy Adams part. Interesting. Very different movie. I mean, it, yeah, it would, have been, it would have been good, but probably not Spielberg good. Probably not, no. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I would uh, generally agree with what everyone said here. I would say, honestly, it's my third favorite Spielberg movie. I've, I've thought long and hard about it. I think right behind Jaws and Raiders, I think Catch Me If You Can kind of has everything I love about both eras of Spielberg to me. All like the fun whimsy of his earlier period and then all of like the dark, genuinely interesting, serious stuff of his later period. I think it balances all that so perfectly with so many great performances and a stellar score. Janusz Kaminski, who has been his cinematographer forever, does such a great job with the look of this movie. And how it just captures both like the vibrant wonder of that 60s era and then also the inherent dark tragedy that's inherent within this story, even within that period, is like so present throughout this whole movie. It's the one of his masterpieces I would consider the most underrated, I would say. I think this one kind of gets swept under the rug. Many great films would follow this one, but um, I still think this one is one of my favorites, especially that kind of era of his career for sure. But... 
Before we get into our next feature, here's a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. It was the dawn of another podcast. The Epsilon 3 is a dream given form. It's a home away from home for three guys to watch a 90s sci-fi classic TV show. Three guys with microphones over 3,249 miles apart, all alone in the night. The year is 2021. The name of the station is Babylon 5. The name of the podcast is the Epsilon 3. Veer, bring me a drink. All right, and now let's get into our second feature, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Not as easy as it used to be. Damn, I thought that was closer. You're a teacher? Part time. So, uh, this is the fourth entry in the Indiana Jones franchise. Uh, all the previous three had been directed by Spielberg. We covered Last Crusade several episodes ago. Like, Adam kind of mentioned he loved Raiders so much. Adam, I'm guessing you're a fan of these films, at least the first three, right? I, uh, first and the third. Second one's okay. <laughs> well, okay. What about uh, Marcelo? Are you, are you a fan <laughs> of the, the three films preceding this? <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I love the first three. Um, I have a soft spot for the second one. Um, I, I, okay, I, let's not get into the second one. I'll just say, I understand, you know, a lot of it may not hold up well now in 2021, you know, Temple of Doom, but as a kid, that was always my favorites. But I, I, I now, if I were, if you were ask me to, you know, put them in order, I'd say they're all tied for, for first in my heart to the first three. So I, yeah, I, I love those three movies dearly. Well, yeah, I mean, I would definitely say, like, I, I love the Indiana Jones movies for sure. I think Raiders is still my favorite of those, and Last Crusade's very close. I actually rewatched both Temple of Doom and this film in the same night, just to kind of, like, reacquaint myself with the ones that have the most contentious elements to them. And, um, I mean, I would definitely agree. I think Temple of Doom has a lot of the same fun that's present there in the Indiana Jones movies, even though with, um, we'll just say heavily problematic elements and leave it at that. Yeah. I think we can all agree on Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. Um, but then, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out 19 years after Last Crusade. Pretty big gap. And this was him returning to this franchise, along with uh, the co-creator George Lucas, who um, went through, like, they all went through several different drafts to kind of get this done. There were There's a draft that's going to be done by M. Night Shyamalan, and there was one that was done by Frank Darabont. Yes. I know. It's weird. They <laughs> there, are, there are scripts from both those guys that exist for this fourth Indiana Jones adventure that I would love to read. I'd be fascinated too. But then we got this movie that came out in 2008, May 22nd, 2008, um, and uh, was not as well received necessarily. Uh, Adam, this was your bad pick. So I get the feeling that you're not as big a fan of this one. Uh, well, you know, I, I was trying to think of a word to really describe how I feel about this movie. And the best word I could come up with was shit. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, look, it's hard to decry 
you know, a Steven Spielberg movie or an Indiana Jones movie, because look, I could never do something like this or get something like this put together. It's just kind of mind blowing to me that after all the years of sort of, you know, different scripts and production woes, and that this is what we landed on. We landed on Shia LaBeouf swinging in trees. We landed on Kate Blanchett being a Russian fencer slash Spetna's psychic, whatever the fuck she is. We landed on Ray Winstone being a double, triple agent. I understand wanting to put a movie out, and I understand wanting to capture sort of the nostalgia or maybe create, recreate a new franchise with the, the source material and update it and everything. But we didn't get any of that. We, really, we really didn't. It, it falls too too much on old hat while int- the new things they introduce do not really work in the universe of Indiana Jones to me. Like, I understand, you know, people are like, well, it's not a, really a religious thing because the first one was, you know, the Ark of the Covenant. The third one was, you know, the, the, um, the fucking cup. Holy grail. Yeah, whatever the fuck. That thing. <laughs> the second. <laughs> you know, the cup of a carpenter. You know, John Carpenter's mug. That's what it was, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He put all his cigarettes out in it. Uh, the second one, you know, had to do with the, sort of that, uh, the other sort of religious cult. And this one is aliens. And, you know, at the time, I did have a problem with that, too. And then I was talking to even my brother about it. He was a big fan of the movies. He's like... So you're telling me that that you have a problem that aliens aren't as real as the Holy Grail? They're like, oh, you fucking got me, you prick. Uh, but no, I just, I just think it's it's stupid. <laughs> it's just a stupid movie. It, it's just Harrison Ford. He he does he he can't even do it anymore like it doesn't even look believable at all harrison ford in this movie doing the action scenes reminds me of even to tie it back to the franchise but sean connery doing action scenes in league of extraordinary gentlemen We're like wow this just looks so wooden and unbelievable and the thing is were people really pressing was there that much of a want to continue the Indiana Jones franchise because the last crusade literally ends with them running riding off into the sunset it was done perfect did we need this? Did anybody want this? Like honestly. Yeah, that 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 that's the question. That's the yes, question. the eternal question for sure. I, I think there was a want for that, and that want probably stopped around like 1993, probably. I would say, <laughs> um, for it. But I mean, I don't know, Marcelo, are you as harsh on Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Not as harsh, but still pretty harsh. Um, I'll just say I still vividly remember my feeling once it was over once the credits rolled walking out of crystal skull this feeling of i had never felt it before and rarely had i felt it since this feeling of emptiness what did i watch was that good was that bad and i still can't tell you the answer like it's it's still very much in the middle for me some of it is very bad some of it is good but it just in the end, it doesn't work for me. It does. It doesn't work. And I, hey, I spent the last hour defending the guy, but now's my time to just say Spielberg. Maybe you just said you should have said no to this one because yeah, like m- many of the points that Adam made, like I'm I'm right there with you because yeah, who was this movie for? Why are we seeing Grandpa Harrison Ford like do all this stuff? Like th- th- there was no need for it uh, because we had that perfect trilogy already. Uh, yeah, th- that's the question that I'm I'm still trying to come up with. Like, 
Like, why? Like, who is this for? <laughs> who is enjoying this? And, and and my only answer is like, was Spielberg at this point just grappling with his own age, with aging himself, that he wanted to see uh, the star of this franchise be, you know, a very old man, 64 year old Harrison Ford, you know, running around doing these stunts. Like, uh, uh, maybe that's the answer. It's, it's Spielberg's own fear of death that drives him to make this movie. <laughs> but anyway, all that to say, yeah, I fell asleep in the third act of this for this rewatch. I apologize, but I woke up for that stupid wedding. Um, yeah, it doesn't work for me. Um, again, few good parts, but overall very much in the middle for me. Well, allow me to drop my devastating oh, no. hot take about this film, which is to say, I think the first hour is pretty fun. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's okay, yeah. that's that's my trouble with it. Just like, every time I rewatch this movie, the first hour, I'm like, oh, wait, is this better than I remembered? Maybe I'm a bit too harsh on this movie. Maybe we all were, guys. I think the trouble is just that, like, there's a certain point where I think the movie becomes bad, and it's not the nuking the fridge thing, for the record. I thought that was always kind of yeah. a thing. Like, we try to make that jumping the shark, and I don't think it's, like, nearly as offensive to me. It's like, there's a certain crucial point where I think the movie kind of has a no point of no return kind of thing. Can and I, it's, I would say I, it's, oh, yeah, you want to guess what it is? Yeah, okay, I'll just say, I'll, I'll take a guess, and I'll tell you when it ended for me. <laughs> when, when, like, my enjoyment ended is when yes. Shia came in. Um, that's for me. That's when I'm like, oh, okay. I uh, wouldn't even so that say was about... when Shia came in. I mean, for the, we might as well say this for the record now. Based on all the allegations that have come out, Shia LaBeouf's a piece of shit. We can all agree on that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Fuck him yeah. as a person. I think Shia's kind of fun in the first hour of this movie, where he's introduced as just sort of like this wannabe greaser kid that's trying to prove that he's tough when really he's an actual nerd at heart that's just not willing to admit it. I think that's like for me, it's like I said, about an hour or so into this movie. It's the moment where Shia tosses the snake to him, and they do the whole oh, snake bit in the quicksand. Jesus. That is the moment where I'm like, oh no, and it doesn't get yeah. much better from yeah. there. There's a couple fun bits down. in the second hour, but that's like the point of oh, right. I think all of the really bad stuff is like backloaded in this movie. Personally, like all the big troubles I have are in the back half. Whereas I like the start of this movie a lot. With particular, like, him and Ray Winstone are captured by Kate Blanchett and they try and find the Crystal Skull and that whole sequence that occurs in the warehouse and even the big, the Ark of the Covenant little tribute bit. My favorite action set piece in the whole movie is really the thing that's, like, him and Shia initially at the Greaser Club where they're talking to each other back and forth and Shia tries to steal a beer and Indiana Jones puts it back on the table. That kind of, that bit's fun. And then leading into the whole chase sequence on the motorcycle, I think is a really fun, exhilarating Indiana Jones-style sequence all the way into the library, which is like, if you want to be yeah. a good archaeologist, you gotta leave the library. There's a lot of fun stuff, I think, in that first hour. It's just, it really, like, all the devastating stuff really happens later for me. But that's that's me dropping my brutal hot <laughs> and, and And I pretty much agree with you. Like, there, again, like, when I say there's good stuff in this, like what you pointed to, that for me is is, is the good stuff. <laughs> like the, the 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 chase sequence. Like yeah, like when Shia comes in, my and now knowing everything about Shia and how much of a shithead he is, um, sh like sure dampens it even more. But like even like when that character shows up, I'm like, oh, okay, do we need this? Um, but but again, like you said, like that chase sequence after you know they escape from the bar, pretty good into the library um even like when they uh, go to the to that ruins and they have that fight with that tribe that was pretty good but yeah but then once they meet up with Kate Blanchett and they're running away and and then they 
do do the whole vine thing, chase through the forest. That's the worst part of the movie for me. Right, where he gets a lot more CG heavy, like on the cliff and like them fencing on the two cars and shit like that. Not yeah. But Adam, do that you agree it. at all about some of the good stuff I mentioned earlier in the movie? Uh, you know, the thing is, like we said, not to get into it anymore, Shia LaBeouf is a piece of shit. Fuck him. You know, yes, absolutely. Uh, but no, I, no, I, I, I can't, I can't agree. I, I look, dude, the fact of the matter, Shia LaBeouf, piece of shit or not, they still put that fucking hat on him. And it, it, it's just, it looks ridiculous. He looks ridiculous. There's too much of a polish to everything. Like whatever filter they use on, there's not one second of Shia LaBeouf on screen with his costume or his bike or anything that I believe he's a, like this tough greaser kid named Mutt which is, oh. But, I mean, that's not, I think that's completely misreading the point. Like, the movie's very clearly saying, like, no, he's not that. <laughs> he's a nerd kid cosplaying as a fucking greaser dude. That's, like, the joke of the movie. Yeah, the, the whole movie's a fucking joke. No, I just, <laughs> I, no, dude, I gotta be honest. No, I, I thought the stuff between Harrison Ford and Karen Allen still worked. I still think there's a lot of chemistry still there between them. I think she actually, out of all the returning cast or sort of whatever, I think she's, like, the tried and true champion of this movie. Um, a, because Marion Ravenwood to me is one of the best female characters ever on screen. And she still got it. The heart is still there. The charm is still there with her. Like you say, the first hour, the first hour has that fucking nuclear test thing with the fucking fridge. And I think that shit's fun. Hot take. I think that's fun. Oh, I hate <laughs> it so much. I, I don't think that's any less like over the top and silly than some of the other stuff in the other Indiana Jones movies. I really don't think so. No, that's, that... that's, that's fine. That's your opinion, but it's wrong. <laughs> no, that's fine. I get it. But then it's like just the CGI prairie dogs. And that's one thing, too, about this movie. And I think you already mentioned it, Thomas. The CGI is so out of like place with everything else in this movie. It's not it's not doesn't look good. It looks muddy and over polished at the same time in a weird way like it just it, none of it works for me i, I just think the movie kind of looks ugly i think the like the prairie dogs never really bothered me as much i think you can tell with this movie it feels a lot like steven spielberg of that kind of you know era that we're talking about where he's a bit more serious kind of trying to have fun versus george lucas ride it hot off the prequels kind of trying to like instigate his stuff into it and you can see them kind of battling a bit here like these two friends kind of like butting heads to some degree. Yeah. Would you maybe agree with that, Marcelo? Uh, yeah. Spielberg and Lucas were talking about the concept for this. And Spielberg was like, George, I don't want to do aliens. And George was like, these aren't aliens, uh, Stephen. These are interdimensional beings. And Spielberg was oh. like, you know what? Whatever. <laughs> what Was he dressed up as the guy from the ancient aliens thing? Just like, this, this is what it is, Stephen. <laughs> Me a <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to your point i can I, i'm pretty sure there was um not 100 sure but i'm pretty sure there was that headbutting and i can definitely tell that there's like this 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 conflict in this movie about um it trying to be this sort of homage this throwback action adventure movie sure the the shia going through the vines thing is is the worst part of it but the ending which I slept through. I want to repeat myself. I slept through it this time around, but I remember it distinctly. The whole ending with the aliens coming in and Kate Blanchett getting sucked up in there and like the spaceship going away. I'm, I don't know. It doesn't work for me. Like the 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 yeah. whole the whole uh, uh, aura of the first three 
is basically gone by that point. It's like, it's not that I have a problem with it, like you were alluding to earlier, Adam, about like, oh, like the first three were about like these religious, you know, cult elements. And now we're talking about like spaceships. Just the, the fact, just how it was portrayed with like this, you know, terrible looking CGI with like this, this, and also it doesn't seem like they were phased really at all by it. Because <laughs> like, isn't there a shot of like Indiana just like looking out into the distance and seeing a spaceship go away? Like, shouldn't that be mind-blowing, Indy? Like, I don't know. No, but instead he's just like, knowledge was their treasure. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's um, the point. But I, I guess my point is like, you know, it, it, it does seem like this movie's fighting with itself with like throwing these like very high concept things at you. But yet also trying to be very much like the first three movies, which I, I don't think it fully succeeds at that. That's why I think the first hour feels a lot more just like it's Indiana Jones trying to do some of those tricks within the specter of like, oh, this is now the 50s era and we're fighting like a bunch of Ruskies at this point. I think the first half does a better job of really trying to exemplify that like these old tricks don't quite work as well as you think they might. And then it's ultimately falling apart. That's why I think the second half feels a lot worse because it feels like it's trying too much harder to imitate a lot of, like, the hallmarks of the near their movies. I think it's a lot more clear with, like, oh, the big uh, temple that, like, comes apart and, like, the being chased by a bunch of, like, natives that are coming after them and then the, like, whole thing with Ray Winstone going off just, like, like you mentioned, he's, like, a triple-double, quadruple quintuple agent and then he's just like don't worry i'll be fine they could literally do the indiana let go thing with like ray winston at the end of the movie that they did from fucking last crusade like it's i think the 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 climax movie is a lot more guilty of that than the first half is yeah and it also doesn't help that we're building the mythology of the movie you know the sort of up and around the crystal skulls which before this movie even came out were proven to be just complete fake things like they're not real which they reference in the movie, like Indiana Jones references, like oh, the like good craftsmanship, but they they're not really much of anything, like the crystal skulls from our history that we're aware of. Right, I right, and then but wait a minute, these are the real ones, and you're like, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, I, I guess it didn't help that uh, remind me, but at this point, was Dan Aykroyd selling crystal skulls? Oh right boy, now? was he? <laughs> oh, was he ever, baby? <laughs> Uh, so that didn't help things. Uh, no. You know, you, you could have brought him back. I mean, look, he's been in the Jones movie before. He's briefly in Temple of yeah, Doom. Yeah. Just bring him back. You have him be the Crystal Skull expert. He should have been John Hart's part. Oh, that would have been perfect. Come on. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and then he he picks up the artifact. He unscrews the top, drinks out of it. And he goes, mmm, that's some good vodka. Stares right into the camera. Yeah, have that scene be in the movie. <laughs> in Indiana Jones fun. It's like, buy Crystal Skull vodka. <laughs> <laughs> smooth skull juice. <laughs> Around this time, Harrison Ford was also not giving a shit as much in movies. I don't think he's like in full on not giving a shit mode in this movie. Like he was the big reason why this movie even came to be. But it's kind of like a Snake Plissken thing where he has invested interest in doing like another Indiana Jones movie and he wanted to get back into that. I think he's having at least a solid amount of fun, particularly earlier on with like that whole set piece where admittingly you can see the doubles. I'm not disagreeing that they clearly shot around him being 64 years old, but at the same time, the movie also doesn't pretend that he is a young man at that point. I would say it's still very much like he, this is still like an older adventure trying to get into it. Um, I think they acknowledge his age a bit more in a way that I think would lead the way in better uses in like Force Awakens or Blade Runner 2049. But I still think that Ford isn't sleepwalking through this like he has been some other things. I think he he put down the bong for a bit 
for this movie, I would say. It took the fucking earring out. Uh, I don't think it's on full autopilot in this. I, I, I don't. I agree with that. Uh, I, I think you hit it right on the head. I, I think you see him maybe really giving it more in uh, Force Awakens, especially in Blade Runner. But yeah, I don't think he's on full autopilot here. But it also feels like he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing at the same time. Like, what are we doing? That, that's yeah. the whole problem with the movie. The script is so fucking silly and convoluted and yet simple at the same time. It's like it needed a couple more passes. I mean, let's be honest. If we were going to make it, if we're going to bring back this character after, you know, fucking uh, over a decade, make it worth it. And this to me is it was not a worthy story in order to bring back Indiana Jones. Or even, like, you even mentioned, like, the Karen Allen thing. Honestly, that's my biggest disappointment with this movie, is I think Karen Allen wants to be in it. I just don't think the movie knows what to do with her after she comes in. Like, I think there's a pretty fun bit when, like, she's first introduced and Indiana is figuring out, like, oh, wait, Marion's your mother and all this stuff. I think that sequence is fun. And then after that, she's just kind of, she's there. She's part of the gang. (laughs) We're like, that's about fucking it. And, like, John Hurt has more to do and he's, like, almost catatonic, honestly. It's so Uh. weird. You could tell maybe they had all these scripts and they were Frankensteining their way through it, like uh, combining parts of different scripts. Because at the end, yeah, like you said, like Karen Allen's characters in it, and then Ray Winstone is there, John Hurt, Shia. Like it becomes like a like a gang movie at the end. I'm like, what? Like, why are there so many people in this Indiana Jones movie? I'm like, there's not that many people usually in Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> it's like you have like um, short rounds. You have just. Karen Allen and Indy at the end of the first one, Temple of Doom, maybe three people. But at the end of this movie, there are like six people running around, running around together but, in but, the main gang. But to be fair, the end of Last Crusade was very character populated too. True, you right. Had, you had Sean Connery, you had John Reese davies you had Marcus, you had the German girl. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot in Last Crusade as well. This just seems crowded with people who didn't need to be there. I don't know. I, I love John Hurt, right? But... I still don't understand why he was there. <laughs> like they could have just written him out and given that knowledge to Karen Allen, like her character, like, uh, Marion. And that was it. That, that would have been it for, for, for John Hurt's character. But he, he was there to point out the space between spaces. <laughs> That's why he was there. <laughs> and especially with the John Hurt character, Abner, correct me if I'm wrong. I might be misremembering, but in the very first movie, he's dead. Uh, well, no, I think they, they reference Abner is the father of uh, yeah, Karen Abner. Allen's character. Yeah, and I, as far as I remember, in the very first movie, he's dead. No, no but, he, but he's not Abner. That's not his character. Who is he in this, then? Why am I thinking he's <laughs> Abner? They reference Abner at one point. He's just like, Abner's girl. They reference... Yeah, there you go. There's the problem. Right. He's, he's yeah, Oxley. He's Oxley. Yeah, they reference his name as Oxley firmly in the movie. Marcella, See, I... Marcella, I don't even remember it. I can't even remember I was also confused. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I am glad Jim Broadbent uh, was the character he played, but I was also confused. Like, was he he playing um, Marcus Brody? No, no, no. They have have a Brody statue in the middle of that big chase sequence. So they establish him as dead, and he's just like the new dean at the school. Right. It looks like you Which guys are real crystal skull heads like me over here. With <laughs> all my extensive knowledge. Uh, knowledge is my treasure. Um, but... Well, hold on, guys. Let me pour a drink of this beautiful crystal skull vodka. <laughs> We're not sponsored, but Dan, if you're listening, please. No, okay. We will we will shell out crystal skull vodka, please. Use code Skull 
for 50% off your next box. <laughs> it might be hard to spell because it inherently is. Um, but um, before we go into final thoughts, I do want to ask, there there is a new Indiana Jones movie that has been oh, filmed, boy. evidently. Not by Spielberg. Yeah. He was going to direct it, but James Mangold ended up taking up The Rings, um, who had done a movie we've talked about on the show, Logan, before. Not a bad filmmaker at all. Marcelo, what do you want out of this is happening you can't say i don't yeah. want it to happen oh. because it's happening oh, yeah. I... it, it will happen what do you at least hope you will get out of a fifth Indiana jones movie what what do you want to see at well, this point with this character so, okay i saw a possible spoiler on twitter may not be true spoiler, uh, spoiler. go ahead go yeah ahead. okay yeah, yeah okay. unsubstantiated rumor alert, alert. Fast... <laughs> yeah 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 fast forward like a minute if you want to you know skip it skip this possible rumor but there could be time travel involved because, uh, like, apparently Harrison Ford was walking around with, like, um, uh, Irishman, uh, you know, dots on his face that could oh, de-age oh. him. Uh, that's an angle I'm worried on one hand and I'm also hopeful on the other hand. Because if they do it right, that might be an interesting take on the next movie. Because after the end of this movie, I don't see how – because at this point, how old is Harrison Ford? Like, uh 70 years old oh Very boy specific. and 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 if i had a problem with like King, uh, kingdom skull harrison ford indiana jones doing everything he does in this movie then I, I for sure would have a problem with like that old 79 specifically jesus 79 yep. okay yeah <laughs> yep. oh god yeah so if 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 they were to age him down if this you know didn't involve time travel and if they, if they you know if they learn from the Irishman and like not have you know Harrison Ford do all this you know do all the movements like because I love hey I just rewatched that movie a few weeks ago Irishman I love that movie right but the de-aging there kind of rough when you see like a what seventy or maybe eighty year old Al Pacino do like movements of what's supposed to be like a forty year old Al Pacino it doesn't really work. Same with like De Niro and, and Pesci. Yeah, seventy-year-old Robert De Niro kicking somebody's ass looks ridiculous. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I love time travel, and that's an element that that could be really cool in a new Indiana Jones movie. That's something they haven't really t- they haven't at all touched on. So yeah, it's intriguing, and I love Mangold. Um, and yeah, I I remain hopeful but cautious. I was aware of the de-aging thing. I don't know about if it's going to be as time travel specific i've said this before on the show and i still stand by this pitch even if they aren't going with that the obvious pitch to do and i could see why people are maybe wouldn't want to do this because post schindler's list he's been very opposed to like depicting really nazis unless in like a more straightforward way you have indiana jones try and stop like the remaining nazis in like argentina in like the I 70s Ooh, yeah I think that's the way to go just because it's Indiana Jones having to be like the last relic of an old age trying to destroy the evil relics of an old age as well. Like they're maybe trying to resurrect or do something with some artifact, I'm not sure which, but that's the way I figured you would go if you're going to have to do another one of these just to like, and I think really tie things off with a bow is just to have that kind of adventure I think would work. Yeah, well, for me, there's two things. One that was rumored to happen, which, thank God, because all the different casting things this guy's been involved with, we're not getting Chris Pratt as Indiana Jones. Thank God. Like that, <laughs> Jesus. Too busy. Too busy to do that. <laughs> too much going on. And two, uh, you know, normally I would say it's an impossibility, but Ghostbusters Afterlife just happened. I don't want a Sean Connery ghost. Like, oh, don't, man. Don't, don't do that to us. Why'd you bring that up? <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I mean, 
it could happen nowadays, apparently. Look, my thing is, obviously the fifth one's done. It's in the can. We're getting it. Just be done after this one. There is no need to do a sixth. You know, I I, I will say a uh, the one thing I liked about the ending of Kingdom Skull was it didn't pass the hat to Shia. Thank fucking God they didn't do that for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah. And, and, hey, in foresight, best decision, Spielberg. I don't know. Uh, it could be in the right hands. And hopefully Ford is awake enough for this. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I'm just disappointed Spielberg didn't actually have the heart to end it himself. Because he directed at least the other four movies. I'm, I'm sure yeah. it was like a lack of interest there. But Mangold's not a bad director. So we'll see. Yeah, it just didn't work out. No, I guess not. But um, speaking of not working out, let's go into our final thoughts on Indiana Jones <laughs> and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Marcelo, your final thoughts. I know people who like this movie a lot more than, than I do or we do. I I guess I get it. There's some fun bits in it. But overall, yeah, a lot of it does not work for me. Um, the fun is there, but it's clouded by, I'll say it one more time, Shia swinging through the jungle on those monkey vines. Truly a low point in my life. Uh, just my life in general. Like, not just the movie. My life. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but, like, 50% of it is bad. 50% of it is good. And just emptiness. Emptiness all around. That's what I feel when I think about Crystal Skull. So that's my final thought. Such enthusiasm. Adam, your final thoughts on <laughs> the just thinking of the Crystal Skull. As I watch this movie, anytime I see it, I feel like my face is Belloc's when he sees the fucking Ark of the Covenant open at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, I feel like my face is melting from this movie. Uh, I, 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 I I cannot stand it. I, there's very, very few things that I would say are redeemable in this movie. I think it's the perfect example, and I've talked about this on the show countless times, of just a nostalgia baity cash grab of a movie. They went in and, and had an IP that's successful. They obviously took years to do it, but they didn't go in knowing that they had the absolute right idea and the right pitch and the right sort of story to make this happen. They just had to get it out. I don't know why. I don't know any of the contract stuff behind it or the rights issues. I have no idea, but that's what it feels like to me. It feels like this is just a hollow sequel. To me, it's one of those sequels where I... I know it exists, and that's fine, but I'm definitely one of those guys who choose to not include it in the franchise as a whole. And and that's fine. You, you know, that's my decision. I, I, I'll i stick with the first three and just have my end to the Last Crusade be my personal ending of Indiana Jones. Um, it might have seemed like I was staunchly defending a great work of cinema <laughs> earlier, but I want to emphasize it. I still think this is the worst of the Indiana Jones movies. I'll say I don't think it's that far off from Temple of Doom. I think Temple of Doom, if anything else, I think has better, like, consistent set pieces um, and character stuff that makes it slightly above. But I would still say, like, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is not, I don't think, like, this huge, awful mess of a movie. I don't think it's even, quite frankly, the worst Spielberg movie by any stretch. I think there's he's done at least a solid eight or so more movies I could think of that are worse than this one. Um, but I would say it's definitely the weakest of the Indiana Jones movies. And it, But most of the stuff I really don't like about it is at the ending, which I can see why, like, it leaves you on a bad taste, which is unfortunate, because I think there's a lot of fun stuff earlier on, even the, some of the stuff that, like, I think was kind of advanced by internet stuff about, like, oh, nuking the fridge, it's the worst thing that's ever happened in Indiana Jones. It's like, guys, 
I don't think it really is. If you go a bit further in the story, you might find some more things. Like, I would agree, like, the stuff on the vines. Or, we even talk about this, like, the whole fencing thing on the two cars that also leads to Shy oh, yeah. getting hit in the nuts a bunch of times. But they don't really play it like nut shots. It's a really weirdly constructed scene. All that stuff. Like, any of that stuff going forward, I think, is really the worst stuff in the movie. It really leaves you on a bummer note. That this fun adventure movie that could have been, like a movie acknowledging old Indiana Jones but still having a lot of fun with it that I think the first half exemplifies gets really diluted by the ending. That just feels a lot more messy and dumb. And I agree, definitely. It definitely feels like a movie where they went into it after so much like pre-production trying to get a fourth Indiana Jones movie done only for it to be kind of this weird, messy whimper by the end of it, I would definitely say. But still, I don't think it's the worst thing ever, which is a bold, hot take on the internet. <laughs> not be like no this is either the best or the worst thing you can't be in the middle about something marcelo we can't be we're, we're no, outcasts on yeah. the internet that's what yeah, we are i'm gonna delete my accounts yeah. <laughs> delete <laughs> delete your account but don't do that before we do our uh, next segment we do for every single episode the double redoom where uh, adam and i at the very least uh do a good and bad feature related to the topic of the week. So we talk about two good movies we'd recommend and two bad ones related to the topic, in uh, this case, Steven Spielberg. So Adam, myself, and Marcelo have picks for this. So uh, we'll go ahead and start, though, with Adam. What are uh, your two good yeah. ones and two bad ones for the double redo for uh, Mr. Spielberg? Well, I think my two good ones are going to be obvious ones, but just because they're obvious doesn't take away from their quality and, and the masterpieces that they are, in my opinion. I have, to me, one of the greatest war films of all time, one of the greatest Tom Hanks performances of all time, one of the greatest ensemble casts of all time. I have Saving Private Ryan. saw it in the theater. I didn't even really want to go see it. Uh, I went with my stepbrother, who was uh, in the military, and he wanted to go. So we went, and I'm like, ah, oh, it's fucking long, man. I was like, you know, what, 18, 19 at the time. I'm like, oh, what the fuck, dude, I'd really be smoking a joint. So, but anyways, we went and saw it. And I absolutely loved it, man. I, I, I got emotional during it. I still get emotional in a lot of scenes in that movie. I, I think it's just a masterpiece of uh, of filmmaking, uh, be it a war movie or not, but it is one of the greatest war movies ever made. Um, and then for my second, I have, which I think I've said it even on this show, and I, I'll stand by it. I think it's the greatest blockbuster of all time. I have Jurassic Park. Not only because of how just much of an event it was, but what it did for the future filmmaking and how and even cgi in the business and the thing is it's so weird you go back and watch it and the cgi in that still holds up better than movies that came out five years ago that are cgi heavy um it's just it's a timeless movie filled with great great performances it's just a great movie it's filled with fun excitement laughs danger scares uh it's just it's there's nothing else like it unfortunately it got saddled with all of its sequels then for my bad i have which I think is just a misstep in every way. Talk about another war movie populated by comedic actors. Uh, 1941. I've tried several times to really find something that I like. I mean, Belushi's pretty fun in it. You know, there's there's some fun performances. I just think ultimately it, it just it, it just doesn't work. There's something tonally off about it to me, and I, I really can't put my finger on it. But I just I can't I don't enjoy it anytime it's on. And then I mentioned earlier about nostalgic cash grab bullshit things ready player one <laughs> to me biggest example of that i've personally ever seen i understand being a fanboy of things because i definitely am one of those 
and all that. But this is just, to me, the perfect example of toxic fandom. Oh, look, there's a Gundam. Cool. It has nothing to do with the fucking, like, just, just stop with this shit. I didn't, I've heard the book is just as bad. I never read it, but the movie is just, talk about like Indiana Jones, King of Skull. It's a hollow fucking movie. It's literally, a, oh, remember this? Remember that? Mem-? It's a member Berries movie. Like, you know, oh, the Iron Giant, that's cool. Remember him? Oh, Godzilla. Like, I don't fucking, fuck off with this. Like, fuck off. And it's so CGI heavy that within five years, it's going to look terrible. It's not going to hold up. I'm so ugly because she has a birthmark on her face. Like, what the fuck? Get the fucking stop with this bullshit. I hate that movie so fucking much. I mean, I I literally can't form into words why I hate it so much. It's mostly just grunts and F-words. I just think it's a hollow movie. I, I just, there's nothing fun about it for me. I mean, I I get it with Ready Player One. I'll say this much. Having read the book, what's so fascinating is that um I think it's a massive improvement, even though it's a big fucking mess of a movie. Um, I genuinely think, like, the experience of, and mainly I didn't read the book as much as I listened to the audiobook by Will Wheaton, um, was one of the worst experiences I've ever had with an audiobook. It dragged so hard and is, like, so much... Like, if you think it's bad words, like, oh, he references a few things, like, visually, imagine lists upon lists upon lists for pages of things you fucking know from other fucking things. Like, that's a solid 30% of that fucking book. It's just somebody listing a bunch of bullshit, like, I know this. Like, good. So did did BuzzFeed (laughs) publish it? It was a bit before BuzzFeed. I think BuzzFeed took cues from that book. But I think that's the thing is I think Spielberg, I think, did the best possible job you could with such terrible source material and still made like a pretty messy, underwhelming movie. So I think I give him at least some credit for that. Um, 1941, I agree, is like a huge infamous mess. It was at the time it was his first big failure to some degree. Um, what, What I find fascinating about that movie is just the fact that Spielberg is a guy who knows how to do comedy in his movies. But it's usually like character-focused stuff that's like in between the bigger action set pieces or emotional beats. That's a movie where he's like, oh, how should I be funny? Um, I'll throw shit at the screen and see what sticks. And a lot of it doesn't. It's a lot of interesting like um, like uh, miniature work and special effects stuff. But it feels very misguided, a mess of a movie. We've talked about Jurassic Park on the show before. Obviously agree, I love that movie. And Saving Private Ryan... I think is great. I'll have the a bit of the hot take to say I think it peaks during its opening. After that point, I still think it's quite a good movie, but it never reaches quite that high of emotional tension and fear that I think the earlier Normandy sequence has. Yeah, uh, I'd like to tell a quick story uh, on Ready Player One, only to brag that I was at the world premiere of Ready Player One at South by Southwest that year it came out, and Spielberg was there. Uh, I was in the theater with Spielberg, um, although I was uh, up in the balcony at the Paramount Theater in Austin, huge theater. Um, and, and I'll just say about the movie, I like it well enough. I mean, for the source material, he did fine, right? Nothing spectacular. Uh, but the most memorable thing about the screening was the movie goes along, sure, sure, sure. Uh, the crowd's into it because it's obviously it's a sold out crowd. It's packed to the brim. Spielberg is there. The cast is there. Um, it's like that energy is up to like 11. The the climax of the movie is is going, uh, you know, uh, and there's this beam of energy that goes into the sky and does something that makes a loud noise. And when it when that beam hits the sky and makes a loud noise, the audio in the theater cuts off and there's no more sound. 
and there's there's like there's, the crowd goes silent for a second and starts screaming like what what like what's happening they the, the screen goes dark the whole thing rewinds about a minute they try again everybody you know once the screen comes back on they're screaming again here we go beam of light sky cuts off sound no more happens again <laughs> <laughs> fuck <laughs> okay let's try this again it happened, I want to say, three times. Oh, no. And then when it finally worked, when the the beam hit the sky, big sound happened, and the movie progressed, I don't think I've heard an audience scream that loud. The fact that the movie continued on after that, that was a wild experience. Only because, again, the movie's not that great. It doesn't warrant all that energy. But the fact that I was in the sold-out crowd, Spielberg in the audience... We're all hyped for this movie. Um, yeah, spectacular experience. Um, and then Spielberg, of course, made a joke afterwards. That was That's my story for Ready Player One. And yeah, it's an okay movie. All right, then. Well, um, <laughs> well, I'll go ahead and do my uh, double review choices here. Um, I have, uh, interestingly, mine two good ones um, here are a bit different. Um, I would say for him, I think particularly the the first one I have here is his first feature length film, The Sugarland Express, which if you don't know, is basically this movie that's based on a true story in which Goldie Hawn um, gets her uh, husband played by William Atherton out of jail um, and tells him, hey, unfortunately, um, our baby is going to be taken into foster care and we're going to go on a cross country trip to get our baby back. And it's this interesting, dark comedy of a movie about just basically these two people who are not very bright but are very in love trying to find their child and it's a huge like cross-country chase thing kind of similar to catch me if you can um where the police are following after him and there's a lot of tension that's going on but you can see so much of early spielberg's like ability to present especially like a family dynamic that's broken and also just like the despite a lower budget being able to get a lot of like really fascinating huge action set pieces out of it with particularly it like a lot of car chase stuff in this movie that's pretty stellar and i think it's just it's one that's gotten a bit lost to time in a way that i think uh, more people should see it wasn't just jaws that started out with everyone's gonna start somewhere i think this is a pretty solid one that deserves a bit more attention and then in the movie we referenced a lot here um i have the movie that he uh, did right before Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was uh, Munich, which I think is a stellar movie. Basically, it's about um, the infamous horrible massacre that happened in 1972 during the Summer Olympics in Munich um, and sort of the fallout from that. I think that movie is really stellar. I hadn't seen it until fairly recently. And I just think that movie does such a great job of really building up a lot of the tension that would go on from an, an incident like this, but really making it a lot more intimate and about the people who are kind of investigating what's been going on with this. And especially it feels also like there's a lot of like Spielberg getting into some of his Jewish heritage stuff with a lot of the uh, German Jewish descendants that are like really heavily into the plot. Um, I think it's one that maybe has gotten a bit more lost to time as well, I would say, compared to some of his more recent, bigger like Oscar plays, you know, Lincoln or even The Post. I think this one does a really stellar job of kind of balancing his knack for action-based tension with a lot of, like, really powerful imagery that really works to his advantage. I think it's a pretty stellar film. Um, And then my two bad ones are, I think, the movies of his that exist the least, quite frankly. Um, I have first Always from 1989. Do you not know what Always is? Don't worry. You're not alone. Because I wasn't even really aware this movie existed. And so, like, I went through all of Spielberg's movies 
to like do a list several years ago, and I finally watched Always, which is this very schmaltzy movie about a 1940s like World War II pilot who ends up uh, getting killed in the middle of a firefight. His ghost basically trains a new pilot, like weirdly subconsciously, to fly these like uh, aerial firefight planes. While at the same time, it turns out this particular pilot is the one who is romancing his now widowed wife. Uh, played by Holly Hunter, and Richard Dreyfuss plays the main guy. It's such a schmaltzy movie. Like, if you want to talk about Spielberg going full-on into nostalgia in a way that's, like, very much of his era, Always is really that, to the point where it's like just, like, a movie that barely has any kind of pulse to it. It's so dull and aimless. There's some fun stuff, like John Goodman's in a very early role of his that's good. Um, It's the last role for Audrey Hepburn, and she's solid. It's sort of like the guardian angel that's um kind of leading around Richard Dreyfuss. It's not completely awful but it's definitely such lower tier Spielberg to the point where it's probably his most forgettable movie I would say um and then the other one I would have which I would personally say is my least favorite Spielberg and I think exemplifies all that stuff about always but like times two at the very least uh I have Warhorse. I think Warhorse is aside from some solid cinematography and a pretty good John Williams score is kind of a waste of time I think it's just this journey of this horse going from one awful depressing event to another in a way that doesn't really exemplify much of anything of interest and to the point where like the whole thing is like oh the horse's relationship with the the boy who loves him so much there are so many shots of just looking at that horse that feel really creepy and really odd in a way just like i want that war horse to get away go to any other place it's almost this weird movie where like it's supposed to be like magical but like oh he manages to get back to the boy isn't that magical this is a horror story it's a story about this horse who goes from person to person and how they just die tragically i would easily say it's the worst spielberg movie far worse than crystal skull or even ready player one i i think that is the bottom tier for me um i've never seen sugarland express I didn't even know what it was about. I know the title. I knew it was Spielberg's first. I just never, for some reason, never caught it. But from your description, I like. I definitely want to seek that out. It sounds like it could be pretty fun. Munich. I love Munich. I think Munich's great. I think Munich was might have been like my first real introduction to like Daniel Craig, maybe even Syrian Hines. But that fucking sex scene is just so nuts. To right. Me. There's yeah. so much sweat <laughs> pouring off. Yes. Like, they're banging in a fucking sauna. Um, but anyways, I, I think it's a great movie. The violence is fucking... It's a brutal, brutal movie. But yeah, it's it's fantastic. One of Eric Bana's best performances as well. Um, always, I have seen once. Uh, I forgot completely who was even in it until you said their names. Um, I remember it exactly as you described it, just being really schmaltzy. Um, and believe it or not, I, for some reason, always, hey, grouped always and forever young with Mel Gibson as the same movie. They're not, but for some reason, the the pilot and the all this stuff, like, for, I just thought they were the same movie. And I know that sounds crazy. And Warhorse is, uh, uh, was going to be on my list until you, you, you called it. It is a boring fucking movie. Give me a little Sebastian movie. I don't want to watch War Horse. Like, War Horse is terrible. It does look good. It's beautifully shot, and it is an okay score. But other than that, it's just, there's nothing there. Well, okay. I, I guess I'm going to be the guy who likes War Horse. I like War Horse a lot. Oh, I, War Horse boy here. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm the War Horse boy. And I, when I saw it, I have only seen, I think, the one time. 
I thought it was a lovely story. Uh, very, I, I love how it's shot. I love, I love, I love the colors in it, uh, the score. Uh, I don't know. It worked for me. I liked War Horse. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, <laughs> I have I have not seen all of Always. That's one I need to see all the way through. Um, that and um, Empire of the Sun are like my two real major uh, Spielberg blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, oh, yeah, of course, I love Munich. Munich's amazing. And that sex scene is is weird, but it works for me. Um, and, of course, Sugarland Express, uh, underrated great Spielberg uh, work, um, which is it's still influential, apparently. Like, I was at a Q&A with um, Sean Baker, director of Red Rocket, and he said that was, like, a primary influence on him and that movie on Red Rocket. Fun fact for those who are going to see Red Rocket. Makes a lot of sense, based on even like the Florida Project, which you talked about previously. It's, it has a lot of those same oh, yeah. vibes, for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, Marcelo, what about your choices? Yes. Um, so, yeah, I didn't want to copy any of the movies y'all had. So, here are my picks uh, for the good. I uh, First one on the good pairing is A Minority Report, which, which we talked about earlier on the show. Um, love that movie. That's in my top five Spielberg. I mean, I, I threw that on after watching both uh, of the movies we talked about earlier. After Catch Me If You Can and uh, Crystal Skull, I'm like, you know what? I just watched Crystal Skull, and I'm 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 awake now after that nap. I want to watch a good movie now, so I put on the Minority Report and watched a good bit of it the other night. Still works so well, especially now, almost 20 years later. Ah, amazing. Uh, I'm pairing that with Lincoln. Uh, so th- th- these two movies, I think, are good post 2000s. Like Spielberg's take uh, on America, both good and bad, um, uh, and and Lincoln is the good. Um, Minority Report is the bad in America, but they're both great movies. I love Lincoln. I love Daniel Day Lewis and Lincoln. It, it is so schmaltzy at times, but it's very much written like. Um, do, do I dare say Aaron Sorkin? It's very much written like kind of like a Sorkin-esque, like West Wing style story, very political, and not like the the typical biopic that that you'd want in like a Lincoln. Uh, movie but oh my god it works um and the fact that he's not in it as much like in the middle really works too it focuses on like the, those like congressmen <laughs> like james spader plays a key role which i love all of those supporting characters god so good that movie is so good but yeah that's the first pairing lincoln and minority report and now the bad i had some uh, i was like okay how do i handle this because really in my book there aren't too many real bad bad spielberg movies um so i picked two that are like for me, at least misunderstood, misguided, uh, maybe ones I need to rewatch. I kind of left like a bad taste in my mouth. First one is The Terminal, which it's been a, it's been so long since I've seen it. But I just remember not vibing with it. Like, I see what Spielberg does with that. I see what he's trying to do with the humor and the drama. And it's funny that we've talked about Catch Me If You Can, where the, the tone in that is is perfectly melded. With like the comedy and the, comedy and the drama, but in the terminal, it didn't really work for me. Um, as much as I love Tom Hanks and accents, that didn't work for me either. And then with that, the BFG, which it's a, it's another misguided uh, uh, one from Spielberg. A lot of it I like, <laughs> but I don't know. It, it, it going to uh, that point about Ready Player One. It's like I don't think it's going to age that well in a few years because it's just so CGI heavy, and it's very jarring. I don't think a lot of it works because of the CGI effects um, as, as, as much as I love like some of the cast in there. And as much as I love the Corgi farting stuff in there, 
that may be the best scene in the movie. But beyond that, I don't know. A lot of a lot of missteps from Spielberg with the BFG. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the Terminal and the BFG are both ones I wouldn't say are like the worst necessarily, but I think both definitely are misguided is the best adjective I think for either yeah, of them because I, I, I yeah because I think there's some fun stuff just the Terminal alone the fact that he created that whole airport set I think is pretty stellar. Um, and there's some good, solid, like, performances throughout that, but I do agree it kind of just meanders a bit. Same thing with the BFG. I think Mark Rylance became, like, his BFF, basically, during this <laughs> pe- particular period. And, I mean, I can get it. I think he delivers a solid performance, despite how weird that look of the actual character is. There's, like, the whole set piece where it's, like, the BFG playing around with, like, the other giants that are, like, bullies, that oh, like yeah. goes on for oh, fucking ever. <laughs> it's just like yeah. it feels definitely just Spielberg kind of like, oh, we're having fun, and it's like you're having fun, and maybe those actors are having fun, but I don't know if we're having fun <laughs> nearly as much um, necessarily. But then I completely agree with Minority Report. Stellar, I think, just the the technology that they even created, just like the look of like the touchscreens and stuff. Samantha Morton is phenomenal in that movie. Doesn't get enough credit for it. Um, and in the same way with Lincoln. I agree that I think uh, Dan Day-Lewis is great. Someone doesn't get enough attention. I think it's the last really great Tommy Lee Jones performance, I would say. Oh, yeah. He's so goddamn good in that movie. He's, he's really like the heart, the secret heart of the movie that makes it work. But then again, half the fun of that movie is just, like you said, saying, oh, James Spader, everyone's in that fucking movie. Are we did an Adam Driver episode last week. He's in that movie. Uh, yeah. JGL's in it. Like, it's just like everyone fucking pops up. If you were of some importance in 2012, you had some kind of cameo in that fucking movie. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, I love Minority Report. You know, we talked about it a lot, but it is absolutely one of my favorite, not only Spielberg movies, but Tom Cruise sci fi movies. I, I think it's a masterpiece. Lincoln, I mean, you kind of throw Daniel Day Lewis in anything, I'm on board. I mean, that guy. It's incredible to watch him work and sort of see him take on all these characters. And yes, other than him, it's still a great movie populated by an amazing cast. And I agree with Thomas basically on everything you said about the Terminal and BFG. I don't think they're the worst, but I do think they're sort of very misguided uh, sort of films. Yeah, and let's uh, just go ahead quickly and uh, repeat our titles before we head on to the end of the show. I'll uh, just start real quick here. I'll say uh, my two good were The Sugarland Express and Munich. And then my two bad were Warhorse and Always. Uh, my good were Saving Private Ryan and Jurassic Park. My bad were 1941 and Ready Player One. Hey! <laughs> oh, one. Uh, my good were Minority Report and Lincoln. And the bad, in quotes, The Terminal and the BFG. Yes, and uh, submit your own double reduce, please, for us, for Spielberg, or any other previous recent topic you might want to. Uh, we'll have our email and stuff mentioned below here. Uh, we just want to thank some people, though, before we head out and do our picking for next week, so stay tuned for that. Uh, first, though, thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for the artwork for our show. Follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water on Twitter, where you can find a link tree to see all his other great stuff out there. And uh, thanks to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash gedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you get access to bonus podcasts, and uh, you also get to vote in polls for movies and topics we do. Like uh, this week that we're putting out this episode, you'll be able to vote for an upcoming episode we're doing about Shakespeare adaptations in honor of uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth from Joel Cohen coming out. We're going to be doing some Shakespeare adaptations at the start of next year. And so you'll get to choose between my two good choices, which will be Throne of Blood 
from a little guy you might have heard called Akira Kurosawa, which is his adaptation of Macbeth, uh, versus the uh, Richard Longcrane adaptation of Richard III, starring Ian McKellen from the 90s. So Richard III versus Throne of Blood. It's all up to you, patrons, which one will win. I just want to also give a shout-out. We got a couple new patrons recently. Uh, friends of the show, uh, Casey Gerard, who's been a guest previously. And then also uh, Kanihida also became a patron recently. We really appreciate it, guys. To you and everyone else who's been a patron for quite a while really helps out. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Casey, fuck you. But Kanihida, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Yes, yes. And uh, we also want to thank, of course, our guest, Marcelo. Thank you so much for being on the show again. Please plug yourself. Where can people find you on the internet? Thanks, y'all, for having me back. This was fun. Uh, check me out over at TalkFilmSociety.com. Some podcasts going over there. No surprise. Uh, have a nice apocalypse. Uh, me and Mark are serving discuss Southland Tales and the works of Richard Kelly on that one. Uh, and then also the Talk Film Society podcast, which I do with uh, many great guests. That's uh, maybe at this point, maybe a little bit later on in the month. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop episode 100 of that one. So that's great. Uh, and also, I'm editing Kelly Smith's uh, Igniting the Spark Star Wars podcast. Um, and yeah, check all those out at TalkFilmSociety.com. And also uh, support us over on Patreon, Patreon.com slash TalkFilmSociety. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a patron. You get a lot of uh, fun bonus stuff on there. Really appreciate that. Oh, and also, yeah. I was a guest on that the Talk Film Society podcast like about a year ago. Where we talked about uh, Possessor. Yes, we uh, need to need to have you back on because I'm gonna do some more of those coming up, covering the many great films of the last year. So yes, always excited to talk about movies. Yes, of course, always talking about movies. Yes, but for more of us here in our Rinky Dink operation, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBPod. And also, uh, you can submit feedback to us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, if you can't uh, help out with the Patreon, that's cool. It could also help out if you were to do maybe a one-time purchase over at the ESOT Public Store. There'll be a link in the description for that. Or uh, just in time for the holidays, you know, you can buy a mug or a t-shirt or anything with our logo on it. It uh, really looks spiffy and also helps us out, gets us a bit of a kickback. So it would help out if they did what, Adam? Buy a match. Buy a match. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. Oh, such a great endorsement from them. But uh, for, for more of our uh, individual antics, you can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd is at Not the Who's Tommy, where I do some musings about film and other things. And also I do some writing at both marianithomas.wordpress.com and film-cred.com. Oh, they're good. Film cred's good. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And I'm on Letterboxd at Schwanton. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not listen to all the other great shows on there? Uh, or else you can dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for a bunch of episodes even before we joined ESO. And nothing else if you can't buy the merch or support us through the Patreon. The completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because that gets us more visibility. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I go on rants every week. It is completely fucking free. Uh, and I, I just, I it's Christmas time, guys. All right? Like, you know, help us out. All right? I mean, what the it's fuck? the holidays. Spread the holiday or else, cheer. Or else we're both going to have a blue, blue, blue Christmas. Yes, very blue. Um, unlike, You know, help us get onto, like, Spotify top 
charts, which shout out also to yeah. Christian Alvarez and Tori share that they had us up there for their Spotify yeah, podcasts. Of, awesome. Yes. Yeah, that was great. But now it's time we finally did our picking for next week. And uh, we uh, have a very interesting topic for next time where uh, basically Adam this time has the two good picks. I have the two bad picks. And we've assigned numbers between 1 and 10 randomly for both those choices of ours. And uh, when we have, I guess, like Marcelo, they pick number between 1 and 10 for both our choices to get us our good and our bad double feature. But keep in mind, we do have the Godfather rule, where basically Adam and I each have a single veto in our back pocket to use for a choice of uh, a good or a bad movie. We only have one of those. Um, So this veto will expire come our next anniversary in May. And it can only be used after hearing a person's choice. So, for example, I have the two bad choices. If Adam hears my bad choice and says, you know what, I don't want to cover that movie. Actually, Thomas, I'll take the cannoli. He uses his veto. We don't do that choice. We have to go with whatever other choice I have. And next week's topic is very interesting because we're going back to something we haven't done since the very beginning of the show like in the, I think, episode 17, 18, around there. So it's been quite a while. We're going back to the world of film noir in honor of Nightmare Alley coming out, which we're both Ooh. very curious about. So uh, we decided to go back to the to the noir uh, of it all. And keep in mind that with that, we are extending this to not just be old school film noir, but also neo noir could be included. Yeah. Yes. And uh, in this case, you have the two good ones, Adam. So Marcelo, please... For his two good choices, number between one and ten. A number between one and ten. I'll go with three. Okay, at number two, I have a film from 1944 starring Barbara Stanwyck. I have the noir classic Double Indemnity. Oh, I'm not taking that cannoli. Fuck yeah, classic movie. Aces, great. We're good. Great. Doing that one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. gone for that. <laughs> For my other, I had a neo noir movie uh, that I. It's neo noir. It's based on a graphic novel. I have the original Sin City. Yeah, solid neo noir. That would have worked up perfectly for the show as well. But for my two bad choices, please, Marcel, number between one and ten. I'll go with six. Okay, at oh, seven, fuck. I have a movie that I don't actually think is that bad, but it is kind of a divisive movie. I know Adam's not a fan, so I'm curious if he's going to go along with this. I have uh, the one directed and starring his favorite, Warren Beatty, Dick Tracy. Oh, God. <laughs> now, you, uh, c- you could take that cannoli if you want to, Adam. You have that option. Uh, uh, oh, Dick Tracy's good. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to take it because it gives me an excuse, another excuse to talk about Pacino and also William Forsythe. So I'm not taking it. Madonna's so good in that. <laughs> well, we'll be talking about that. I don't necessarily disagree, Marcelo, but he might. And we'll, we'll you'll have to listen to next time to find out about all about all that. All right, all right. I'm <laughs> hooked. At at number two, I have a similar neo noir, though I think I would maybe Adam might even say is worse than a Dick Tracy, but a more recent one from 2013, Gangsta Squad. That would have got the cannoli because that oh. movie is terrible. That's rough. That one's rough. <laughs> Damn. Again, I think this is the second time that's happened where I had an option that would have had you take the cannoli, if not. Hmm. I gotta reorder my structure. I gotta open with one of those next time. But but until then, so Dick Tracy and Double Indemnity. Very interesting. We'll get into all that next time. But until then, uh, everybody, grab your hats, your fedoras, and put them on. But not if you're those kind of guys. If you're Indiana Jones, you don't really wear a fedora. I think that's very safe to assume. Like Unless you're Indiana Jones. 
don't fucking wear the fedora. Or you got a katana and your waifu pillow. Yeah, too, I guess. <laughs> Maybe Indiana Jones has that too. You don't know. Yeah, you don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe that's the fifth movie. <laughs> this waifu pillow is my treasure. <laughs> been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.